Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for listening to the Top Docs Radio Show today. I'm very pleased to have with me on the show Representative Sharon Cooper from the Georgia House of Representatives, also chairs the Health Health and Human Services Committee. She sponsored key health legislation that has enacted in Georgia and including an HIV screening bill for pregnant women, Georgia's Smoke-Free Air Act, and the Health Share Volunteers in Medicine Act. Representative Cooper is regarded as one of the leading advocates for patients and physicians in Georgia. It is also worth noting that she was married to the late Dr. Tom Cooper, who founded or co-founded MAG's Doctor of the Day program at the state capitol. MAG Doctor of the Day volunteers provide free minor medical care for the legislators and their staff in MAG's medical aid station at the state capitol during the legislative session each year. And I'm really happy to catch her. She's a busy lady uh, on her way to an appointment. So I got to catch her on the phone. Representative Cooper, thanks so much for sitting in with us a little bit today. Well, thank you for having me on and for remembering Tom. But in the aid station, they also take care of visitors to the capitol. And we do have uh, medical emergencies with people who come to to visit us. Not too many, thank goodness, but there's a doctor in the building when we're in session and he's there to help everybody. That answers the question, is there a doctor in the house? We, we've got that one covered. <laughs> well, yes, and uh, we have two doctors in the house now. Uh, Dr. Betty Price, who's married to Dr. Tom Price, who is now up for consideration for the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, Betty is on the health committee and a great asset to it. And we elected another brand new doctor that I look forward to getting to know uh, from the Augusta area where we have our one, our only state-run medical school. I would imagine that having those types of individuals be a part of the legislative group, that it certainly comes in handy when discussing how do we approach some of these healthcare questions and what do we do about them? Well, it certainly is because, I mean, I was married to this position. I, I'm a nurse with advanced degrees, but there's nothing like having a person who's been through medical school, who's been through residency, who's worked in the arena to really be able to communicate with other legislators because um, medicine is a very specific uh, type of uh, profession, a very important one when it comes to, you know, patient care. We are a legislature made up of like the general population. We have grocers and school teachers (laughs) and insurance salesmen and farmers and lawyers and all sorts of people, and they don't have a medical background. So yes, having physicians. And, you know, out of 236 people in the House and the Senate, there's um, that many legislators, 180 in the House and the rest are in the Senate. Senate. Um, We only have about, with these two fairly new doctors in the House, uh, there are two nurses, uh, two doctors in the House, two doctors in the Senate. So that's what, uh, two, four, six. Um, 
mm, couple of PAs, eight. Uh, maybe there's 10 people who have had actual hands-on patient experience. Now, we've got some pharmacists, and uh, I think we have a couple of optometrists, and maybe sort of the allied health, but as actual doing patient care, uh, we're pretty few and far between. Well, I, I know that that's a valuable asset to the process of trying to tackle healthcare issues. One of the things we see is whenever we make changes around either documentation, for example, or who can access what sorts of information, the thing that can sometimes be lost, I think, is how does this affect workflow in the actual implementation? When you get down into a point of care, whether it's a doctor's office or a hospital, how are these things affecting our ability to do the things we need to do to actually deliver well, the care? And that is so true. I just came, you know, I've been in a meeting for a little over an hour with Senator, U.S. Senator Ron Paul, talking about his ideas on health care and how it needs to change. And, you know, one of the things I said to him, please, if y'all are going to do anything, could we look at the regulations? Because so often it's not just what Georgia can do. It's the federal rules that come down. I mean, one of the problems we have is uh, getting physicians to treat our Medicaid patients. I mean, physicians are the good guys. I mean, it's not that they don't want to, but we pay them less, much less than what it costs to treat the patient. Yes. And then we pile them with all sorts of rules. There's a new rule that says if you treat one Medicaid patient in our state, you must have all of your materials translated into 12 languages. And and if one and if a person wants an interpreter, you, the physician, has to pay for it when you're already being paid much less than what it costs you to treat that patient. No wonder we can't get physicians to sign up to treat our Medicaid patients. And I send out a big thank you to all of those that do treat them. And I don't see how they afford it, especially the ones that live in rural Georgia. Mm -hmm. When the patient volumes that they would see over the course of the year greatly reduced over what you would see in a more urban area. That's exactly right. So, you know, I said to Senator Paul, please, can you just make sure that no matter, you know, as you change this, you look at the rules that the bureaucrats have put in place. And, you know, he said that, you know, they would be. And, you know, I know Tom Price, he'll make a great HHS. Uh, he served in the in the Georgia Senate. I uh, know him well. He was my representative and I was proud to serve him and to work for him when he ran for the U.S. Congress. Uh, and I know Betty well and he will do a great job. And he understands what we're facing uh, since he was an orthopedic surgeon. So it sounds like when we talk about the Medicaid system within Georgia's population that we're working to try to bolster, if you will, as you were saying, the number of physicians who are providing care there. Is there anything, I I don't know that there's a whole lot we can do from the Georgia perspective around those types of rules and what we can do for those types of patients. What do you think about what what are the possible ways we can improve that? Well, one of the things that we are lucky to have in Georgia, there are federally run healthcare systems, and we have uh, those in Georgia, they have about 167 or 69 uh, clinics in all over 
Georgia, especially in our rural areas, uh, they are helping us take care of that. And I, I'm very proud. One of the first bills that I passed was a bill from a Democrat when I took over as chair of health. And that would have been in 2005. That representative had tried, and he was well liked in his party, a long term member. And he had tried to pass a bill for the, and promoting free health clinics. And he couldn't get it through. And the reason was, is that doctors work in a, and now it's nurses and dentists and everybody. If they donate their time in a free clinic across our state where they don't take any money for seeing a patient, the state picks up their liability. Mm. And, you know, we have a lot of retired doctors who have reached an age where they're still sharp. They just don't want to practice, you know, 40 hours a week right. and take call and all the other things they do. But they still want to see patients. And But to carry the amount of insurance. I mean, the last time one of my friends was an OB, which has been several years now, I mean, the malpractice insurance was over a hundred and forty thousand dollars a year before he opened the door. Wow. It's that was ten or fifteen years ago, and you know, so you get a retired doctor who wouldn't mind seeing women for not maybe deliveries, but sure. for uh, other health problems. Yeah. But they can't afford uh, over a hundred thousand dollars for insurance, and so that program has worked beautifully in our state. I am so proud of it. I'm so proud of that representative who later switched to the Republican Party, Mickey Schnell, who's retired now, for bringing that forth. But we are trying to see our patients uh, right now because of the changes that are coming in Washington. Uh, basically, doing anything and any changes to the med- I mean, everything's sort of on hold. Right. I mean, why would we do anything and then have it totally turned upside down? You know, from Washington, I hope uh, that they're going to block grant the money to the state. I truly believe that we can decide how best to care for Georgians rather than a bureaucrat in D.C. And so I hope they will come up with a plan to block grant money for our Medicaid patients. Let us come up with the program to do it, take away some of these ridiculous regulations and let us try it. The states are sort of experimental labs. And it was like when we did welfare reform, that program came out of a state and it worked well in that state and it was adapted on the federal level. And so you have pretty smart people on state levels and mm-hmm. uh, and they're all different. And all the states are different, and we can come up with some pretty good ideas if given a chance and are not strangled by federal regulations. And I think that those state-level leaders are obviously closer and much more in contact with the people that are actually affected by these changes in the legislation and regulations. And so I would imagine that knowing what their particular demographic and and issues are, that they are able to craft what are uh, pretty innovative solutions, I think, in in many times, as you as you just mentioned. Right. I mean, we're closer. We're closer to the people. I mean, I represent members of the House in Georgia represent. We each represent about 60,000 people. I go to the grocery store after session 11 o'clock at night sometimes. And invariably, I'll meet a constituent that wants to talk to me about an issue. 
and I'll sit in the grocery store and we'll <laughs> talk, you know, for 15 minutes or so. And uh, so you and you meet people at church and they talk to you, whereas it's not because the congressmen don't want to or the U.S. senators. Of course, our two senators represent all Georgians, which is about 10 point. <sighs> Two million, yep. and the and the House members each represent over about seven hundred thousand now, I think, and so it's harder to have any personal contact with seven hundred thousand, much more so than it is with sixty. Or uh, our senators represent about a hundred and thirty or forty thousand. Our state senators do, so we're closer to the people. And I and I greatest experience in my life. I, I, I wouldn't trade it for any of the many things I've done as a nurse and as a nursing educator and as a nursing author. Uh, now in making the laws for the state on what doctors and nurses and healthcare providers can do and all, I wouldn't trade this job for anything because I've it's dealing with the citizens of Georgia and helping them and it's great. I've had the pleasure of catching up with Representative Sharon Cooper. She's the chair of the Georgia House Health and Human Services Committee. I was uh, lucky to have her in the studio with me last year talking about some of the issues that we were working on last year and looking forward into 2017 and from where we stand, Representative Cooper, how do you, how do you feel we're doing and, and where, what kind of grade would you give our, our current healthcare system and what we're doing in Georgia today? No, no, you know, I don't know about a grade. We are terribly short on positions. If you do the overall area of Georgia, we would be about 37th or 38th. The last mm-hmm. rating I got in the number of physicians needed to treat each 100,000 Georgians. If you take out the metro area and go into the rural areas, uh, we dropped to about 48th. And I'm telling you, Melanians don't always look at Georgia and people in the metro area as a rural state. We are a rural state and we're the, I think, about the eighth fastest growing state in the United States. And we are an aging population. We're growing uh, four to one in aging. And so we have a real problem with coverage. And I just had somebody at this meeting with Rand Paul say, well, what about using, you know, physicians extenders? That would be mm-hmm. nurse practitioners and PAs. Well, first of all, they're not physicians. They have a wonderful place in our system. But the other thing is they're not in the rural areas either. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to have they a physician are, supervising them. So they're still required. But it's no, and that's right. But it's not just that. You know, they, you know, they're married, they're professionals, they don't want to live in, unless they grew up in rural Georgia and want to go back to the family. Uh, they don't want to live in rural Georgia. They want to be somewhere where they can go to a play or they can go to the symphony or where they think their children are going to, going to go to yes. better schools. Yes. It's not just because the physician is leading the team and the person who has the greatest knowledge and, and takes the responsibility for the patient, it's because of our changing demographics. If you look across the United States at a map about where people live, we are no different than other states that have been rural, like the Midwest. Kids, kids are not farming. They're, right. they're not becoming, they're not running dairies. And you will see that people are moving to the metro areas that rural areas are less populated and they're populated with older people and sicker people. I, I mean, it is a problem all over 
this country. Yeah, and in so many cases, not, poorer people as well, you know, because there's often less opportunity financially uh, there in manufacturing and, and agriculture, certainly on the decline in, in certain areas, unless you're a big operation. Well, and, that, and that's the other thing. I mean, you have a PA that's married to a lawyer. That PA might enjoy a country practice, but there's no place for their spouse to practice law. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so so you have that problem. We are now very often a two, you know, working uh, family where the parents are both working and they want to work. So often in the rural areas, there might be something for one, but not for the other one. So I, there... It, Sometimes this job is not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about the need for physicians, uh, particularly in rural areas, I know that one of the choke points, if you will, to meeting that demand is availability of residency seats and then also, uh, you know, being able with those uh, uh, additional residency seats, if and when they're available, uh, to be able to take advantage of the you know wide variety of of specialists who come from foreign born and foreign trained medical schools I, did i hear something not recently that uh, that they had been able to get a few more residency uh, seats available or or was that in the works well what happens is and so maybe the, your your listening audience doesn't know is in the early 90s the powers and be in washington decided there were going to be too many doctors and so (laughs) incredibly forward thinking there oh right and so the federal government in all its wisdom the feds pay on the on the residents that they sponsor uh and i mean by sponsor that they provide some of the financing for it's about one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year to to train a resident that's Georgia cost, I don't know what it would be in New Hampshire, not New Hampshire, but in Boston or somewhere right. like that. It's probably a lot more. But the feds pay mm, sort of close to $90,000. Now, that's not what the resident gets. Sure. But that's that's for all the faculty, all the costs of training and everything that goes along with training a resident. And so they, the feds put up about $90,000 and the hospitals put up the rest of it. So it's very expensive to have a residency training program. In the 90s, they put a moratorium on any new residency programs. And they said, even if you wanted to pay for a residency program of your own, even if I was the head of Wellstar, which has just happened, and I said, I want a residency program. If my hospital had ever had a residency program and closed it, that made me ineligible to start a residency program. (laughs) If I was a residency program like Grady, if Grady could take 100 more residents, nope, they couldn't have them. So what you've seen in Georgia is Wellstar. Wellstar has been willing to put up and carry most of the costs. It's in conjunction. The state is helping some with it. And they now have 10 residents. Um, They started this year. They started in July. And there's 10 in not family practice, but next step up, uh, but basically general practice internal and medicine. four yeah. internal medicine and four in OBGYN. Mm-hmm. I mean, but the other problem with that is and why we can't just go and say to some hospital in Tifton, we want you to have a residency program, even if we give you the money. Well, they don't have enough cases. Uh-huh. I mean, we got a, we got a bill coming up this time. 
And it's one of the things, it's a scope practice, and it's uh, it's been dropped. And optometrists want to be able to uh, do an injection into the eyelid. There's a condition people get. They sort of get these kind of little lumpy tumors. They're not malignant. but And there's a treatment where you go in and you inject a type of medicine in the eyelid, trying to dissolve them. If if that doesn't work, you have to use a scalpel and so forth. But the optometrist have asked to be able to inject in the eye. Well... There's a difference in the training, and because we are a legislature with all the different people in it, people don't always understand. I mean, I have great respect for optometrists, but if they even saw somebody with this condition, they might see one person with it and get to maybe try to do that one time or two at the most. Uh, I thought it was interesting uh, that they're they were talking and there was a meeting between ophthalmologists and optometrists and their president of the uh, optometrist was there and he was talking about it and was saying that the students practice on each other. Well, you know, that's fine. Student nurses do that in the beginning, but then they go on and they may practice bathing each other, but then they go on and bathe patient after patient after patient after patient. Well, they don't do that in in the optom school. They don't have time to do it. And the difference is when you do, you go through four years of medical school, uh, you learn all the different conditions that affect the eye in great detail, and then you spend three years at least doing a residency, and where you do your residency, an ophthalmologist has to be certified and board certified, and they have to have been able to prove that they have and see enough patients with all these conditions that you as a young resident resident in ophthalmology will have competency in the areas. Mm-hmm. And and I and I don't think patients understanding and it's one of the reasons as we do these things, patients need to really do research on who they go to and you know what the qualifications are and why there are differences. Because there are differences and it's not a matter of one just wanting money over the other. It's about patient safety and legislators who don't always understand the issues are are making decisions on this. Sometimes it's difficult. I said, I know, you know, my job's difficult at times. <laughs> <laughs> Chair of the Georgia House Health and Human Services Committee, Sharon Cooper, joining me today on the show. We've been talking about uh, the state of affairs in Georgia's healthcare system and looking around uh, 2017, the various issues that we're looking at. And when it comes to the scope of practice discussion, I'm sure it's a bit of a tightrope because we're trying to meet those needs. We talked about the fact that there's a paucity of physicians. Uh, particularly in primary care out in the rural parts of our state, which are expansive and extensive and include a lot of our population, most of it really. And it really makes it tempting to want to try to expand scopes of practice. But as you're pointing out, in particular areas that it's not so simple as just saying, sure, we'll let the extender or the maybe slightly lesser trained uh, version of that specialty be able to handle it. Uh, I know one of the measures that didn't make it through last year, but is re, uh, re emerged on the scene again this year is talking about what dental hygienists can do, for example, to uh, evaluate patients in some of those rural areas without having a, a dentist right there with them. And, and talk about that and in, in, in how it's looking this year. 
Okay, well, the bill will be up again. It it didn't pass last year. We thought we had an agreement, and then the dentist went, no, 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 even you know, after saying they did. So uh, apparently they had some misunderstanding. And, and so what it is is that the law in Georgia now says, and many of these laws are really old, the law now says that a dentist must be present in the building before a dental hygienist can work. And, of course, that's cleaning teeth. I mean, they are allowed now to do x-rays in the, in the offices and so forth, but the dentist must be in the building. Now, what this means to your private dentist is, and you may, your listeners may have experienced it, it takes me a month with my schedule and the hygienist being so busy in the, med, in the dental practice I've gone to for 25 years, it'll take me a month or six weeks to get in with my hygienist and then to get my teeth checked. Yep. And if the day I was finally going to get that appointment, my dentist is sick. And not in the office. Your dental hygienist can't work. They just have to close the office. And nobody can work. Because the law says the dentist must be in the building. Now, we have, here again on our Medicaid system, on peach care for our children. We have about 500 children that are, 500,000 children that are eligible to get dental care. And we can't get that dental care to them. There's many reasons. We pay the dentist less than it's mm. worth to treat them. Here again, I, I said earlier about how Medicaid has now made, their, these are Medicaid children, but it's called peach care. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have said that you have to have all your lang- your materials in 12 languages and <laughs> provide an interpreter. So there's lots of reasons. Dentists are great people. They're not bad people. So we start off and what we said was, okay, we now are starting these school health programs. We have the free clinics. Let's let the dental hygienist clean teeth, not take x-rays, but clean teeth and do sealants when appropriate to try to get some kind of care to these children, uh, especially since a lot of younger children, if you can get them and get their teeth cleaned and get sealants on them and and the you know fluoride treatments you can prevent cavities and problems further on right and you know sometimes and they do a vision a version of this in 47 other states you know georgia's conservative and sometimes it's hard to change attitudes <laughs> and and what happens if you look at associations all of them you will usually find that nurses or doctors or dentists, the ones that have time to be work up the political ladder within their organization and become the president of the dental association or become the president of the medical associations after they are older hmm. and they worked in a different time period, they, things haven't changed as much. And often people in general are resistant to change. Good people are resistant to change. And here again is one of those things that you find a balancing act. I mean, my thing was to them when they were doing it, you know, because they're saying, oh, no, if the dentist doesn't check the teeth before the hygienist does, does the I've cleaning. I've never had that could, happen, ever. Right. Thank you. No, but I can't find people that have it happen. But they I, swear I, it. <laughs> I'll see. I mean, the, the hygienist does the work. Hey, Welcome, CW. Glad to have you here. Does the work. Spends half an hour on me. And I see the dentist for three minutes while they come in and kind of poke around on him a little bit. Looks good. 
Lieutenant knows well, and and I not and, to diminish and, their know, work, but I mean, no one has evaluated me first and then handed me over to a hygienist ever. And and it's very hard to find anybody that does. But there they came, and that's what they said. And oh, basically they were saying the dental hygienist could kill somebody if the dentist didn't see it first, and <laughs> or that. And I'm going. Wait a minute. We let nurse practitioners and PAs do things that will kill you. If a PA or a nurse practitioner orders the wrong medicine, right, they can prescribe. That could kill you. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't think that the dental hygienist cleaning the child's teeth. And I'm going, look, wouldn't it be better for the dental hygienist to go to a school and they're cleaning some teeth and all, and and they find a kid with a mouthful of cavities. And instead of cleaning it, which the hygienists are trained not to do things they shouldn't do. Now, you always have bad apples in every profession. But to say and send home a note to the parents, you know, little Johnny has several cavities. It's really very important for you to try to get them the dentist. I work for this dentist, but go who do you want to, you know, go to whoever you want to. But this child, my dentist sees Medicare patients. Uh, you know, you need to make an appointment call so-and-so. Exactly. And, and, we put, and we put that in the bill. So here again, it's just sometimes hard to change. And unfortunately, these are very controversial bills. Healthcare is about the third or fourth busiest uh, committee in the House, and it I pretty much think it's the most controversial, and sometimes <laughs> the legislators get tired of this, and they just say, oh, it's a scope problem. It's money. Well, it's not just money. Not in this case, I don't think. Not No, and, and they're different, but sometimes people don't see it, and it, you know, it goes on, and so uh, the dentists have been very good about coming and talking to us over the summer. <laughs> I seem to spend a lot of my time, and this is a part-time job at the Capitol. And during off season, we're meeting with groups and trying to work out compromises. And I think we're very close. I think we'll see a bill. And and I think it will help private dentists because I think we're going to move it to where, you know, if you are an established patient and, you know, have seen the dentist, not a brand new one, and you come in and your dentist is sick, your dental hygienist can still clean your teeth. So I think we're working it out on both issues, and I think that that will be a way to uh, get more. And the dentist, we're not forcing anything on dentists. The dentist will still decide whether his hygienist can do it. Uh, if he has four hygienists working for him and he only wants two of them to be able to work independently, that's his call. Uh, the dentist will get the money. The dentist, the hygienist, just like the PAs and nurse practitioners, work for the doctors. Uh, you know, if there's any Medicaid money, it will go back into the dentist practice. Uh, so uh, it's a win-win for everybody. And the main thing I care about is that more, especially that more Georgian children can get preventive dental care. And and this is the kind of thing we do. So it's you know it's really interesting sometimes when it comes to looking at the physicians around the, the state of Georgia, what key message do you have for them as we look forward in, in the coming year? Oh, to become involved. I mean, and, and, and that's what's happened before. Some of the things that have happened and some of the things that are not good for medicine have happened because physicians have not been involved. Uh, you know, lawyers are very involved in the, in the process. I mean, making laws and following the law is what they do. That's not what physicians do. Physicians, physicians take care of patients. And 99% of the physicians 
they are there to do the best they can for their patients. And that's what they think about. And unfortunately, over the years, they have thought everybody in the legislature was trying to do the same thing or understood their profession and and why doing one thing was good for patients and one thing was not. Mm -hmm. And so they need to be more involved. Of course, what that means is you want to come to the legislature. We don't work on Saturdays or Sundays usually. (laughs) I mean, it's a rare thing. So they would have to take a a day away from their practice, their patients, and come to the Capitol and, and lobby and talk to people. And so one of the things I've said is, and I try to get them to do, okay, and you don't always know what's coming up during a session and things can just come out of the blue and we need people and doctors to explain things to legislators immediately. But I've said, to, and I, I get to know your legislator, your representative, you're saying, while they're home and not at the Capitol. You know, take them out for a meal, cup of coffee, meet them for breakfast, you know, and get to know them before you're trying to talk to them about an issue. I mean, I am not a lawyer. My husband was a physician. I know a lot about medicine. I, I'm not a lawyer. I've got a sister a lawyer, but she's in Texas, so that doesn't help me. <laughs> and, you know, so. When a law and a bill comes up that deals with the law that that I'm not real sure about, you know, I've got a lawyer in my district that I trust and that I call. I also use my colleagues, some of them, that I trust to talk about it. But I also have a lawyer in my district that I really trust and another one somewhere else. That's who I turn to and say, can you pull this bill up and then we read it and can we talk about it? And I would like to see and hope that other legislators would do this with physicians so that they have a better understanding. And like I tell physicians, it's always better if it comes from the horse's mouth rather than the lobbyist you've hired or me trying to tell it tell you about it. So that's what I tell physicians, get involved. So to do that at, at the local level, when you're when you're back home in my district, then I would imagine I'm calling your office to set up an appointment. What about if I wanted, if you talked about when you all are in session and you're here in Atlanta at the house, how do I go about, is there a procedure that I need to go through to be able to come and interact with you? Oh, just call my office and ask my secretary to, to get you in, uh, make you an appointment. And, and I will, you know, I lived with a physician, God love him, it's never enough time when you lose your husband. You know, we were together almost 40 years. I know what Tom Cooper did. And you know, if I dropped the butcher knife through my foot like I did, Tom was not home. He was treating (laughs) patients. And I mean, you know, the kid's breaking arm or something and, you know, they're not home. I know the sacrifice that these physicians made. And so they always hold a place in my heart. Uh, now that I, just because I know the sacrifice they make, you know, I will certainly try to meet them. I try to meet everybody that wants to come if they want to come on. But I guess because I've seen the sacrifice through my husband, you know, I'll bend over backwards. Uh, you know, I'll meet late at night or do what I can. And I, and I'll do that, I do that for constituents also, but, you know, it's a special place. Now, that doesn't mean I won't take them on. And one of the things we talked about yep. before we got started was our position, our uh, prescription monitoring program. And, you know, uh, we have a huge opiate problem. Talked about this with somebody at this meeting today. 
I want to make sure that we don't overreact and do something so draconian that patients who really have pain can't get medicine. They've done some of that in about two or three states in this country, and physicians can only write a three-day supply, and it's controlled. And, okay, so what do you do about the people? Like when I had knee surgery recently, uh, I don't have children. Tom's girl away. I relied on neighbors to go to the grocery store and things for me because I couldn't drive. Well, there are people in rural areas or people that you have to do, so you can make it too difficult for people that truly have pain. I had complications after my knee surgery. Um, you know, I laughed and said it, was, it wasn't an infection or anything. It was due to a reaction to a medicine, and there was no way the doctor could have known. And I laughed and said to the, to the physician, don't worry about it. I'm a nurse. My husband was a physician, and I'm a politician. Who do you think is going to have a complication? <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> So, but what if I couldn't have gotten the medicine I need? So, you know, we're looking at the PDM. You know, some people wanted the doctors to have to check on every patient. Well, (laughs) that would be our schedule twos, our threes, our fours, and our fives. When it's our twos that are causing the problems. The twos classification are the opiates. So my thing is, okay, maybe we need to make a requirement. If you're going to write a prescription for an opiate, you or somebody delegated in your office has to go to the PDM, look that up, make sure that patient didn't get a prescription from somebody else yesterday, you know, this kind of thing, and check on it. Well, the physicians aren't going to like that. Nobody likes us telling them what they have to do. But that may be what we need to do to try to help this thing. So, you know, we're... It's a it's a process. It takes time to see if something works. So, I mean, we're looking at the PDM this time, and uh, you know, I here again, very deliberately, let's look at it. Let's don't, you know, go from one extreme to the other. Let's you know make very deliberative, carefully thought out moves, and you know, and see what we can do. If it doesn't get better, you know, we you know, we we got time to come back, and uh, so. Uh, here again, fine line, but I know that's coming up. It sounds like that's one of those discussions that, going back to my comments earlier about workflow, that based on the way it stands currently, my understanding is the only person that can look at this is the physician, and they have they can't stay in it throughout the day. You have to literally log in and out, which ends up adding time to the process. Um, you know, so being able to maybe have some of the extenders like a, either an advanced practice nurse or one of the RNs, et cetera, being able right. to help with that process might be well, effective. No, it is. And we did that last session and there seems to be some question about it. And we've had to get a, an opinion and go to the attorney general and got it the way it was written. So it's been slow to put it. But here again, it's about our rural areas. And family doctors are where a lot of prescriptions are written because they see these patients in rural areas. They're the first place you go. And the lots of our family physicians in the rural areas, they don't have a PER or nurse practitioner. Right. So we need to expand it. I see. I mean, you know, so to somebody that you're delegated who still has, we have very strict rules. They just prosecuted somebody that went to the PDM and and they had the right to go, you know, even though we've had to get a, you know, go to the attorney general and get this talked about in the office. And that person went up and discussed what they saw with somebody in the front office. That carries the loss of your license and a hundred thousand dollar fine. 
and that person is being prosecuted. That's in there to protect patient confidentiality. So if the person that the doctor, you know, as we go forward, delegates and says, you have the right to get your own number and they have to have their own sign-in number Mm -hmm. and, you know, go to the PDM and look this up before I write this prescription or then you realize that if you talk about this or you find out something that, you know, might harm a a patient and you talk to it about somebody besides me, you will, you are subject to losing your license and having a hundred thousand dollar fine. And I mean, we have tried to make it as safe as possible. I mean, legislators, especially in this area, I mean, we walk a very fine line. I mean, Mm -hmm. people may think our job is easy down there. (laughs) And especially in this kind of field, it's not. Well, I know I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, just trying to find that what's best for patients, but doesn't interfere with other people's privileges and this kind of thing. It's, you know, it's interesting work, which I love. I caught you on your way to an appointment. You want to share real quickly the best ways, if I wanted to do what you were saying earlier, interact with the, with you to maybe get some time, what's the best way to go about that contact-wise? Well, we're in session now. It'll go until about late March. Hopefully, we'll get out in March. We did last year. It might go into April. Uh, and so the best way to get me is to call my secretary at the Capitol. Her name is Lynn, and that number is 404 656 and tell Lynn that, you know, you'll be in Atlanta on a certain, certain day. And if I possibly can, you know, I will meet with you. I mean, I, uh, some days we're out and, but if I possibly can meet with you, I I mean, I'm glad to meet uh, with people and you don't have to, because I chair the health committee, I talk to people all over the state. Uh, I don't just talk to people from my district. So, um, that's how they reach me. If you've not done so already in the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs Radio page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the podcast lives. Subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device for your consumption whenever it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and click share on the link. We're really trying to get the word out about the things that are going on in healthcare around the state of Georgia. And I was so pleased to have you join me today, Representative Cooper, to share your perspective on where we stand today and some things that we're working on now uh, and encouraging our our physician population around the state to get involved and share their expertise and their experience in in their workspace so that we can have legislation that takes all of those things into account and helps us advance uh, the best outcomes for our patients. So thanks so much for making some time today. Representative Cooper, I look forward to having you back on down the road. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, take care, and Happy New Year to everybody. All right. Everybody out there who made us a part of your day today, thanks so much. We'll see you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.